Joseph, Israel in Egypt, in the wilderness, in the promised land, judges after judges. Israelites are constantly failing. They have this repetitious cycle of sinning against God, God sending nations to crush them, and then them crying out to God and God sending a judge to save them. Other nations are often attacking and even defeating and captivating God's people. And through all this time, God's people are asking, where is this son that God has promised? God promised that son will come and deliver us and rescue us. Where is this guy? And then comes David. Yes, people were saying. This is the son that we've been waiting for. He's the mighty warrior and king that we deserve and that we need. He's going to deliver us. And people are thriving in the rule and reign of King David. This must be the son. But he dies. What? The promised son who's supposed to rescue God's people dies? Who are we really waiting for? When is the son going to come? And as they're waiting, the kingdom of Israel, whom God has chosen for the sake of his glory, so that other nations might flock to God through the nation of Israel, that nation, that chosen nation of Israel, actually fights amongst themselves and divides. So the nation of Israel divides into the, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Not only do they divide, but they are taken into captivity. The northern kingdom of Israel, captivated by Assyrians. 200 years after that, the southern kingdom of Judah, captured and captivated by the Babylonian empire. The promised land is a desert. No one lives there anymore. It's like New Mexico. No offense if you're from New Mexico. Wasteland with desert jackals. God's people at this point are hopeless. I mean, they've been throwing their hands up in the air, asking God, God, where is this son that you've been talking about? But now they don't even throw, up, throw their hands up in the air. They're thinking, ah, I guess this is the reality. But God... His promises are trustworthy. After 70 years in Babylon, they do return to the promised land. They're able to rebuild the temple and even rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Yes, finally, they're returned, they've returned to the promised land and they're finally rebuilding God's nation and waiting for that son who is going to make all things right. But no one shows up. There is no prominent figure rising up from the crowd where people are able to say, that's the son that we've been waiting for. So they returned to the promised land, but that was it. It was a pathetic nation in comparison to when David was ruling and reigning. Judah was no longer an independent nation. So God's people were adjusting to the new normal just carrying on. 
how God has saved his people and acted miracles for Israelites were all but mythology. An unbelievable story that happened long and long ago. This is when Malachi shows up. When people are apathetic, just going through the motions. Now, Malachi chapter 1. Hear then the words of our living God. A pronouncement. The word of Yahweh to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says Yahweh. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is Yahweh's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Though Edom says, we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Yahweh of army says this, they may build, but I will demolish. They'll be called a wicked country and the people Yahweh has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this and you yourselves will say, Yahweh is great, even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I'm a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is your fear of me, says Yahweh of armies, to you priests who despise my name? Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? By presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask, when you say Yahweh's table is contemptible? When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? When you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Asks the Yahweh of armies. And now, plead for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will he show you, show any of you favor? Asks Yahweh of armies. I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says Yahweh of armies. And I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says Yahweh of armies. But you are profaning it when you say the Lord's table is defiled and its product, its food, is contemptible. You also say, look, what a nuisance, and you scorn it, says Yahweh of armies. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept that from your hands? Asks Yahweh. The deceiver is cursed who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow 
but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says Yahweh of armies, and my name will be feared among the nations. Therefore, this decree is for you priests. If you don't listen, and if you don't take it to heart to honor my name, says Yahweh of armies, I will send a curse among you, and I will curse your blessings. In fact, I have already begun to curse them because you are not taking it to heart. Look, I am going to rebuke your descendants, and I will spread animal waste over your faces, the waste from your festival sacrifices, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I sent you this decree so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says Yahweh of armies. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave these to him. It called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and integrity and turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should desire instruction from his mouth, because he is the messenger of Yahweh of armies. You, on the other hand, have turned from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have violated the covenant of Levi says Yahweh of armies. So I, in turn, have made you despised and humiliated before all the people because you are not keeping my ways but are showing partiality in your instruction. This is the word of the Lord. May the words of Christ dwell richly among us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would edify the body through your word. We know that faith comes from hearing, hearing the words of Christ. So even as I deliver and preach your word, that you would help me to be faithful to the text, that you would um, give life to those who are dead in their sins, and to those who are discouraged, that you might encourage them, that you would grant specific words to those who need specific words and general words. Speak your word to your people. Build them up for the sake of your glory amongst all peoples and nations. We want to honor you, not just with our lips, but with our hearts. So grant us your favor, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. The main goal of today's sermon is honor God's great name. Honor God's great name. Three reasons. God's love, God's rejection, and God's warning. Honor God's great name. Why? Because of God's love. God's rejection, and God's warning. God's love will be verses 1 through 5. Rejection will be verses 6 through 14. And warning will be chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. The book of Malachi is divided into six disputes with God and his people. God says something to the Israelites, and Israelites are responding back. Today, we're going to be covering two of those six disputes. Now, the very first statement that God utters to his 
people through Malachi is in verse 2. So look down with me to verse 2. I have loved you, says Yahweh. Feel the glory of those four words. I have loved you. Not that God loved in the past and he no longer does anymore, but to remind God's people of his love, he wanted them to refer to the past and remember how God has loved them. Oh, you think I don't love you because of your current situation? Look to the past. Remember the past and recognize how I have loved you. I have loved you, says Yahweh. His love is inexplainable because when he loved us, we were unlovely, unfaithful, and undeserving of his love. Perhaps the best story that depicts this kind of unrelenting and inexplainable love is um, in the book of Hosea. In the book of Hosea, God commands his prophet Hosea to marry a woman of promiscuity. Not only that, to have a children, to have children of promiscuity. God gives that command to Hosea to largely depict how God's people were whoring themselves with idols. When Hosea marries Gomer and has children, God names them this. He names one of the child, I will no longer have compassion. That was God symbolizing and speaking to his people. Look, you've been idolizing and turning away from me. You've been whoring yourself with idols. I will no longer have compassion. Gomer has second child, and God wants Hosea to name that boy, not my people. So God's clearly angry, and he's saying something here by giving those two names to Hosea and Gomer's children. So God was upset, angry, and rightly so because his people were wayward, promiscuous, and unfaithful. But God's love is unrelenting. And we see that in how God commands Hosea to buy Gomer back. Gomer has returned to her old ways and is selling herself in the streets. And God commands Hosea, go get her, go buy her back. Can you imagine if you're married, your wife going out in the streets and selling herself? And you as a husband going and pointing at your wife and saying, I'm going to buy her. I'm going to buy her back. That's the type of love that God exudes for his people, unrelenting love. His people are wayward and foolish. Yet, he commands Hosea to buy her back. Christians in this room, God doesn't love us because we're lovely. God loves us because he chose to love us. And not only did he choose to love us, but he makes us lovely. None of our good works makes us lovely and acceptable to him. So God loves his wayward, foolish pe people because he makes them lovely. Now, what is the response, going back to Malachi, what is the response of God's people when God says, I have loved you? 
Look down with me to the latter part of verse 2. Look down at your Bible, verse 2. How does the people of God respond? They say, yes, Lord, you have loved us. Why have you loved us? What is man that you are mindful of him? Is that what verse 2 says? What does it say? Yes, not why, but how. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? Their response isn't that of awe nor amazement, but of disdainful suspicion. This is an evidence of unbelief. They doubted God's goodness and love for them because of their current predicament. They shouldn't have responded in unbelief, but in amazement. But they trusted in their feelings. They made a judgment call based on what they saw. Christians, do you ever doubt God's love for you and goodness for you? If I were sitting in your seat, my immediate answer would be no. I know that God loves me. Of course God loves me. I'm a Christian. God gave his only son to die for my sins. Of course God loves me. No one can separate me from God's love. That's what I'll be thinking if I were sitting in your seat, in, in the seats here. But do you realize that if, if and when we grumble at our current situation, we're actually grumbling not at, merely at our situation, but towards God? When we grumble at our current situation, we're actually grumbling against God, hence doubting God's goodness and love for us. Because when we grumble, we're not simply grumble, grumbling at our situation, but at the one who dictates all situations. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to jot one thing that you've grumbled against this past week. Think about one thing that you've grumbled for or against. And turn to Christ to rejoice always. We can rejoice always, no matter the circumstance, because of Christ. Does it give you a sense of awe because all things happen in your life for your good according to God's purposes and out of his deep love for you because you're in Christ? But oh, how often do we forget and doubt, functionally doubt God's goodness and love for us? May God enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we may know what is the hope of his calling, the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. When Israel grumbled against God in unbelief, God doesn't immediately rebuke them. God says, I have loved you. Israel says, how have you loved us? But God doesn't kill them on the spot. Thank God for that. He gently recalls how he has loved his people, and that is unconditional election. God loved Jacob but hated Esau. God is basically saying, you had nothing to do with me loving you. That was my choice. That was out of my sovereign and good will to do so. Now, when you hear the word election, a red beam might go off in your mind. 
be, be, election is a difficult doctrine to understand. And mainly because there seems to be a lot of questions in regards to election. And I do want to start out with two difficult questions regarding election so that we can tread along and hold confident, confidently to what the Bible teaches about election. Question number one. If God is really behind electing some to be saved and some to perish, why does he find fault with those who are predestined to doom and destruction? Who can thwart his glorious plan? Question number two. If he still finds fault with those who are elected to destruction, how is that fair? These two questions are about responsibility and fairness. And these two questions are questions that are anticipated and answered in Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 29. I won't be giving any answers. You can look it up in Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 29 for the sake of time. But I encourage you to read that and read our Confession of Faith, article number 5. But the bottom line is this. That your loveliness, that my loveliness, had nothing to do with God's favor. God didn't choose us because we're lovely, just as Hosea didn't choose Gomer because she's lovable. God chose wayward people, just like us, out of his good, sovereign will. And not only does he choose us, he beautifies his people. We can't adorn ourselves enough to become chosen. So let's stop the endless strife to beautify ourselves and to cover our nakedness because we can't cover our nakedness, God does. What is the consequence of God's election? That's verses three to five. The consequence is God's judgment on those who hasn't been elected to be his. Esau, God has chosen to hate, while Jacob, he has chosen to love. Notice how God has turned Esau's descendants, the Edomites, and their land into a wasteland. But while this is happening, the Edomites are hopeful for their future. Look down with me to verse 4. This is Edomites speaking. We have been devastated, but what does it say? We will rebuild. We've been devastated, but we will rebuild. Will they be able to rebuild successfully and actually thrive in the future? No. God says in verse 4, the Yahweh of army says this, they may build, but I will demolish. Edomites were hopeful. But their hopefulness was mere wishful thinking. Because their hope is not aligned with God's promise. It's actually contradicting God's promise. Whenever our hope is contradicting to what God has promised, it is misguided, false, and merely a wishful thinking. Friends, if you don't consider yourself a Christian and you're here joining us today, we want to especially thank you for joining us. You're always welcome here. Our gatherings, I understand, are especially long. And you might hope that it ends soon. But that hope is misguided. <laughs> because I'm just getting started. Friends, hope is something that anybody can have. 
but hope can be easily misguided and uninformed. What are your hopes and dreams? How can you know with certainty whether your hope is misguided or not? If you're not a Christian joining us today, I'd encourage you to ask any of the members sitting here about the hope that we have and the certainty that we have about the hope that we carry as Christians. So don't leave without hearing about the hope that we have as Christians. Christians, our plans can be easily frustrated, amen? Our plans are so, so easily frustrated. But we can take heart because God's plan can never be frustrated. He knows what he's doing. He's doing it whether we see it or feel like it or not. I'm currently, as majority of you guys know, I'm currently a banker at um, Bank of America. My plan was not to be a banker for the past two years. But that was God's plan. And that's good for me. My plans were frustrated, but God's plan is not frustrated. He's teaching me to be content in what he's planned and to trust in his goodness. So, Brothers, sisters, honor God's name because of the great love that he has for his people. The second reason why you ought to honor God is because of God's rejection. Friends, we have all heard this phrase, God is love. Yes, God is love. If God is love, does he accept everything from us? As long as we're sincere and full of effort, does he accept whatever we bring? Or does God reject some things even if we're sincere and full of efforts? So as the people of God had returned from exile, they worked hard to rebuild the temple and the wall of Jerusalem. They worked hard and now they had begun to sacrifice things, offerings. So it surely wasn't like the glorious old days of Israel, but things had returned back to somewhat normal. And as they were back in the promised land, the people of God were probably a bit embittered by their situation since they thought that God was being silent and not restoring the state of their welfare according to his promise that he's made. He's saying, I mean, they're saying, I mean, come on, we've been waiting. You said we will be glorious, that out of us, all nations will be blessed. But look at us now. That's not how we are. You said a king, a son will come and rescue us and bring peace and bless the nations. But look at us. This is not what you said. If that's what people of God are feeling, what do you think God would say? I was assuming God would reassure his people. No, Israelites, I am for you, not against you. I will rescue you. A son is coming. I think that's what I was imagining God to do if people of God were just throwing their hands up in the air. But instead of that, he rebukes them in verse 6. Look down with me to verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I'm a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is your fear of me, says Yahweh of armies to you, priests who despise my name. Let's stop right there. When Israelites hear this rebuke from God, especially priests, they disrespectfully and with disdain ask, 
how have we despised your name? We haven't done that. God says, well, you actually did by presenting defiled food on my altar. Do you know what God said about presenting an offering to him in the book of Leviticus? What kind of offering does God accept? Defiled or undefiled? Leviticus chapter 22 verse 20 says this, you are not to present anything that has a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. God's word was clear. You should, you must offer. That's how you relate to me because you're sinful. Yet when you offer sacrifices, you must bring unblemished. You must bring um, an offering that has no defect. But the people of God in Malachi, they disregarded this and they were oblivious of what they were doing. When God had told them that they were despising God's name, their response was, how? We're still offering sacrifices to you. We've never despised your name. Look, look at all the offerings that we've given you. Often, those who are despising God's name are oblivious. Friends, you are either honoring God's name or despising God's name. There is no in-between. Let me be clear. We don't drift into honoring God's name. Rather, we drift into despising God's name. If we were to put ourselves in a cruise mode and just float around with our floaties, we will most likely float towards despising God's name. But just as we have read, we might easily be oblivious to the fact that we have drifted towards despising God's name. And the tricky thing is, despising God's name can come in a sheep's clothing. The religious leaders in the New Testament were rebuked by Jesus in Matthew 15. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read. Matthew 15 verse 7 says this. This is Jesus speaking against the religious leaders. He says, hypocrite, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrine human commands. Summoning the crowd, he, he told them, listen and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Friends, you might be despising God's name even as you're singing what is true about God. You might be despising God's name even as you're listening to things that are true about God. Can it be that we come to worship the Lord in vain? That as we sing, listen, and even encourage, we might do all these good things the so-called God-honoring things in vain because we're honoring God's name with our lips but not with our hearts, despising Him in our hearts. That's a possibility, and we ought to tremble and continually check our hearts before we shipwreck our faith. 
So does God care about what I bring? Or does he merely care that I bring? He doesn't need whatever I bring because he's self-sufficient. But he is either pleased or displeased with what we bring. So he does care about what we bring, not just that we bring. And that's because what we offer reveals our view of God. As New Covenant Christians, do we bring anything to God to relate to him? No, in the Old Covenant, God's people brought unblemished sacrifices to relate to God. But that's not how we relate to God now. We have a high priest, our older brother, our advocate, who has become the offering for our sins. We relate to God through the Son. But what about all our works? Good works aren't what makes us worthy. It's a proof that we have been made worthy. But friends, let's be clear. How we live does reveal what we believe about God. If I bring only leftovers to God, it largely depicts my view of his worth. Israel was once again sinning against the Lord by bringing defective animals. Yet once again, they were oblivious of their sins. They're honoring God with their lips, but despising his name with their uninformed, misguided actions and hearts. Friends, just because you didn't know that what you did was sin doesn't make it right. Your ignorance doesn't make things right. Your unintentional sin, my unintentional sin, is still sinful. That's why we constantly reform and inform our conscience with God's word. We are sinning unintentionally, and this is an obvious and often neglected truth. Unintentional sin is still sinful. But isn't God pleased by the fact that Israelites were actually bringing something to the Lord? And this detail might go unnoticed, but imagine Israelite bringing lame, blind, and sick animal to give it as an offering. Is there an effort on the Israelites' part? I mean, dragging the sheep or the goat or whatever that they're bringing as an offering that's lame or sick. There is some form of effort that goes in. And when we put an effort into something, even if it fails, do we not tend to give ourselves some form of credit and justify our wrongs because we put effort into it? We act as if our efforts justify our wrongs. I'm not speaking about myself. Oh, I didn't come to work in time. It's okay. You tried. We are quick to justify ourselves as long as we put effort into it. We put a lot of effort in coming up with reasons to justify the wrongs and sins in our lives. And that's not how approaching God works. It's not our efforts that dictate how we relate to him, but his holiness dictates how we relate to him. His holiness dictates how we relate to him, not our efforts. So God says that my effort-filled, hours-long strife to bring the defective animal is not accepted because God has particular requirements that he has prescribed. He says that these effort-filled offerings are not only not acceptable, but evil 
Verse 8 says this, is it not wrong? That's what God says when you bring defective animal. Is it not wrong? In ESV, it says, is it not evil? And God mocks those who have brought defective offerings, who justify themselves with their efforts. Look down with me to verse 9. Verse 9 reads, and now plead for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will he show you, show any of you favor? Just because a person asks for God's favor doesn't mean that God will look at that person with favor. God is not a three-wish granting genie who does anything that the master asks for. He is the master, and he decides how servants should relate to him. I mean, think about it. What would you say if you're a college admissions officer and an applicant were to turn in their application eight months past their due date? And that person pleads with you earnestly. I've worked hours and hours on this application. Please accept it because I've tried. You'll say, no, silly goose. It's been eight months. Dude, turn things on time. Try next time. For Israelites, offerings had become a checkbox that must be crossed off then all are good and at peace as long as you check that box you are good just because we've checked our checkbox doesn't mean that our sins are justified our sins can't be justified for checking the box off our list we often justify our sins with our defiled offerings we justify our sins and play down our sins we justify our half-hearted Christianity. But saints, half-hearted Christianity is an oxymoron. Half-hearted Christianity is a full-hearted rebellion. God desires and his worth necessitates him to be approached and honored and worshiped in particular ways. I mean, think about the Old Testament cases where his servants were killed on the spot for offering strange fire or even for touching the handle of the Ark of the Covenant by accident. God kills them. His holiness requires a certain way to be approached. And we can't put Christianity into checkboxes to be crossed off because that's not at the heart of Christianity. Friends, if you're not a Christian, I've got some bad news for you. Yes, as you've said, as I've said, God is love. Amen to that. But God rejects you. And God will ultimately reject you. Whether you bring something or nothing, he won't accept it. On the far end of one spectrum, you might be working hard to be good, to be morally pure, and to even love your neighbors. And those are all good things. But friends, your goodness and perceived pure purity are simply not good enough. You might think that God will accept it, but that God is a made-up God. You've subconsciously made up and projected a certain image of God that you've heard about. On the, on the other far end of that spectrum, you might be careless. You might care less about God because you don't even believe in one. No matter the case, God rejects you. 
and his patience towards you will eventually end and you will stand underneath the righteous judgment of God and you will be eternally condemned for your sins and your perceived goodness because God doesn't accept those offerings from your hands. That's the bad news and that's horrific but there is good news and the good news is that God is calling you to turn away from your strife to be good or from your misguided hope to turn to trust and treasure Christ because Christ is the son of God, the promised son who came 2,000 years ago. He lived that perfect life and died as the atoning sacrifice on the cross. If you were to believe in Jesus and treasure Jesus, that perfect and spotless lamb who died on the cross, he will forgive you and he will accept you. That's the good news and that's free for you. God is calling you to repent and to turn to treasure and to trust in Christ, not your perceived goodness or idolatry. Look down with me to verse 11. Verse 11 says, My name will be great among the nations from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says Yahweh of armies. Here, this is a promise, but through this promise, God is giving a reason why he won't accept offerings from the Israelites in Malachi. Verse 11 is a promise of God's name being great among the nations and right offerings being presented in his name in every place. Why? Because his name will be great. Why doesn't he accept the half-hearted offerings? Because God's name will be great among the nations. Half-hearted offerings deject and despise God's great name. The greatness of his name is connected to the kind of offering that his people bring to him. But verses 12 through 14 describes how Israel was profaning God's name through what they were bringing. It was actually the priests who were profaning God's name. Priests who were designed to mediate the relationship between God and man, those who are to teach what is right and, what the Lord, and to teach what the Lord requires, they were defiling the table of the Lord. They thought that what the Lord required was burdensome, nuisance. It was a dutiful, joy-killing, dragging your feet, and not with the happy heart kind of a task for the priest. And that despises God's name. When we come and think, ah, this is a, such a joy-kill. When we come with a dutiful heart, repent for that despises God's name I mean think about it if I were to bring flowers to my wife and give it to her and say this is out of duty here you go that despises my wife and her worth in the same way when we are approaching God with a dutiful joy-killed burdensome heart repent and turn to treasure Christ the point is, when offering is like that, God rejects it. There are acceptable offerings and unacceptable offerings. God will reject what is not worthy. The third and last reason why you ought to honor God is because of God's warning. 
Look down with me to verse 1 and 2. It says, therefore, this decree is for you priests. If you don't listen, if you don't take it to heart to honor my name, says the Lord of armies, I will send a curse among you. I will curse your blessings. In fact, I already begun to curse them because you are not taking it to heart. Remember, remember, God is speaking to the priests. Those who are designed to mediate the relationship between God and man. And God was warning them, if you don't listen, and if you don't take to heart to honor God's name, I will curse you and your blessings. The greatness of his name necessitates a great consequence. Not only does his great name necessitate great offering, but it also necessitates a great consequence. Curse. Curse on those who don't honor the name of the Lord. In verses 3 to 4, God foretells how he will humiliate his people. What does he do? He spreads what? Yes, dung, animal waste all over their faces. This is the judgment that he will bring to those who do not take it to heart to honor God's name. Because priests were not honoring God's name but despising God's name, he in turn was despising them by putting waste over all their faces. This is what God was promising to do if they were not to take it to heart. But brothers and sisters, this judgment is good. It's for their good. Look down with me to verse 4. So verse 3 was talking about how God was going to rebuke their descendants, spreading animal waste over their faces. Verse 4 is the word then. When I do this, then you will know that I sent you this decree. When I judge you in this way and humiliate you, then you will know that I sent you this decree. What's the purpose of sending, you, sending them this decree and them knowing this decree? What are the next two words? So that my covenant with Levi may continue. God judges his people with humiliation so that they may know that this decree was for him, from him, so that his covenant with Levi may continue. What a comfort that his judgment is for his glory and for his people. You might be asking in your mind, what is this covenant of Levi? I've heard about Abrahamic covenant, Israelic covenant, Adamic covenant, even Noahic covenant, the new covenant. I've never heard about this covenant of Levi. Well, you actually read it in Numbers 25. It's the lesser well-known covenant that God had made with Phineas, who was a Levite. Phineas turns back God's wrath by killing an idolatrous Israelite man who was walking with a Midianite woman when God had commanded his people to not to marry a Midianite woman because they would be whoring after other idols. And because of Phineas' action here, God does not destroy his people in his zeal. He made an atonement for the Israelites. Who's he? Phineas. This was the type of priest who was needed in Israel. And God was humiliating his people, especially his priests, so that his covenant with Levi might continue. But in comparison to this priest, 
who had true instruction from his mouth, who walked in peace and turned many from iniquity. The Israel priests were condoning false instructions, causing many to fall into empty and meaningless worship in vain. I mean, think about this entire chapter and a half. Chapter, chapter 1, verse 6 through chapter 2. He's speaking to the priest. You have disobeyed me. I'm going to judge you. You have defiled my table. You have despised my name through offering what is defiled. I'm going to rebuke your descendants. The priests who are to teach true instruction, who are to guard true knowledge, were actually doing the opposite. At the end of this description of corruption of the priest, we are supposed to ask and led to say, what is wrong with the priest? Priest, do your job. Can we just have some good priests? Can't the priest love the law? Can we just have a priest who will shut the doors of the temple? Can we just have a priest whose mouth will continue to teach true instructions? Could we just have a priest who would flip the tables of money changers? Could we just have a priest who would guard knowledge? Could we just have a priest who would actually offer a sacrifice acceptable to the Lord? Could we just have a priest who would become the atoning sacrifice? Yes. Brothers and sisters, we do have a high priest, and his name is Jesus. He is the one that we've been waiting for. All this is pointing to Christ, the high priest, who loved God's law, who guards true knowledge. Yet that high priest dies on the cross. God says to the priest, if you don't listen, if you don't take it to heart to honor my name, I will send a curse among you. But the high priest who did all things perfectly, God curses on the cross. He is hung on a cross. Cursed is the one who is hung on a tree. Yes. Jesus is cursed so that we might not be cursed. Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take the sins of the world. So brothers and sisters, honor God's name through clinging to Jesus. If we were to offer anything to God to stand right before God, that offering is defiled. Our offering is Christ. He has died on the cross for our sins. So honor God's name through clinging to Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you've sent your only begotten son to die on our behalf, to be cursed, so that we might find life in him. Father, we pray that you would help us not to honor you merely with our lips, 
but being far from you in our hearts. Help us to not to despise your name, but to honor your name. In Christ's name, amen.